Welcome to the PyTone podcast, which focuses on finding experts within the global tech ecosystem who are defining the future of innovation. PyTone is an Asian-based open source enterprise software company, which offers a suite of software applications and infrastructure services to scholars and universities. This morning from Singapore, we have the ex-CEO of Coins.ph and the current head of Coinbase Southeast Asia joining us today. Please welcome Hassan Ahmed. Hassan, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Kanal, thanks for having me. And uh, how are things with you in light of COVID? <laughs> things are much better now. Uh, Singapore has started to reopen, uh, so it's nice to be able to walk outside without a mask, meet friends, uh, go back to the office, uh, so that normalcy is uh, starting to come back, uh, which is really, really nice. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, let's uh, jump into the first question, shall we? Let's do it. So Hassan, uh, tell me about yourself and your background and how it led you to the path of joining Coinbase as their head of Southeast Asia. Yeah, I feel like everyone who's in crypto or has been in crypto for a while has you know, some sort of interesting story for how they eventually got there. My story is uh, that there's a few different components uh, that are intertwined. I grew up in Pakistan uh, until I went over to the States for college. And so I had a uh, sort of just a lived experience of being in an emerging economy with a, a volatile and fluctuating currency and economic shocks to the system. When I was in college, I studied a mix of finance, math, and comp sci. And interestingly enough, at that time, I'd done my honors thesis on the curve cryptography, um, just really out of interest, uh, not, not for any kind of professional pursuit. Um, and I had sort of kind of dove into that specific uh, topic area uh, uh, under my math major, and then just had kind of put it to the side and gone into uh, you know, traditional finance. So I'd done a few stints um, in consulting and, and private equity and wealth management and whatnot. I'd also gotten my MBA from Harvard and eventually kind of decided to switch over into fintech. Um, so I had uh, joined Venmo uh, in the US uh, post PayPal acquisition. And while I was uh, sort of learning all about payments and, and fintech and building on top of legacy banking systems, um, I came across the Bitcoin white paper back in 2013 after this uh, Verge article had helped sort of you know, push it a little bit more mainstream. And uh, you know, because of my, my, some of the stuff that I had studied, um, it made just enough sense of what the, the paper was describing and, and solving sort of Byzantine general's problem. And that coupled with like the payments experience I was having at that time, I was like, you know what, this sounds really out there, but it's super interesting and uh, it's probably worth um, you know, following it and seeing what happens. And, uh, and so I opened up you know, my Coinbase account at that time, which had sort of gone live um, about a year ago before that. And uh, really just started investing and, and kind of following the news and the community that was forming around it. Um, it was you know, even more Wild West um, at that time than it is today. And it was just like this um, idea virus that like, you know, it just sat in my head and it just wouldn't let go. And so for a few years, I was just trading and, and you know, following it uh, nights and weekends until I built up enough conviction that this was both a technology and an asset class that was here to stay. And I wanted to make more of a career bet on it. So I ended up joining a company called eToro uh, that was wanting to launch a crypto brokerage in the US. It's a pretty famous uh, social trading application um, that's pretty well known globally at this point. 
But what was really interesting to me was that they wanted to go crypto first in their offering. And so it just gave me this chance to really learn the ins and outs of how a crypto brokerage works. Um, and again, this is more on the regulated and CFI side, and, and we can sort of get more into that. But for me, it was just a terrific experience and just I really kind of, you know, built up a playbook for how these things operate and how do you bring both the technology and the regulatory and the business stack together uh, to make it work. Now, fast forward a little bit in 2019, uh, my wife and I had decided for a bunch of professional and personal reasons that we wanted to relocate uh, to Singapore and be in Southeast Asia. And uh, so we made that move in December 2019. Uh, got here. Uh, I had joined Gojek at that time. Now go to group. Uh, had about two months of normalcy, where you know where I was commuting to commuting to Jakarta as well, uh, and then the world shut down. But uh, what was great about my experience at Gojek was that I did a few different tours of duty there. Uh, initially, I was sort of tapped as the head of strategy for GoPay, uh, their e-money uh, arm, and was really focused on Indonesia. Then I eventually helped them do a license acquisition in Vietnam for their GoViet unit. Uh, and then ultimately was Aster um, run Coins PH uh, in the Philippines as well. So that just gave me this really kind of accelerated um, exposure to a bunch of important markets in Southeast Asia, as well as kind of brought me back uh, to my true passion around crypto. Um, and from there, it was just uh, sort of a, an opportunity that came knocking with Coinbase to head up the region. Um, and it was just a very easy decision um, given that Coinbase was also a company that I had admired for a number of years. So that's that's how I got here. It sounds fantastic to you, and and, and what a background. Uh, speaking of Southeast Asia, uh, in regards to the crypto market, what type of business models are you seeing in the region? Yeah, let's let's talk about um, Southeast Asia and maybe some of the the market complexions uh, for crypto in particular. Uh, and then we can talk about some of the business models that are being applied um, you know, against the opportunities. So uh, taking a step back, um, one of the cool things about, again, being at Coinbase is, is that it's a global company and we have a global presence where, you know, present in a hundred plus countries. And so we do sort of look across all these different regions and, and try to figure out, hey, what are the kind of the areas or markets that are interesting to play in? And Southeast Asia consistently ranks as one of the most important markets for crypto. And there, there's a few different reasons for that. One of it really uh, is just as a baseline that as a, a collection or sort of as a region, it's big enough um, you know, in terms of having 650 million consumers and, and a big number of connected consumers as well, uh, that it, you know, it is meaningful uh, sort of to have a presence in the market uh, because you can sort of move the needle. I think that another interesting reason for uh, why Southeast Asia is important is because many of the markets uh, and uh, countries here were early to, to crypto and embraced crypto as opposed to, um, you know, being sort of distant from it or having a, a very kind of hostile posture. So as an example, Philippines has had a crypto licensing framework since 2017. Uh, which especially in crypto years is, is extremely early. It, it was maybe one of the first um, emerging markets that you know that uh, went ahead and did so. And so that has also allowed for just a lot of regulatory clarity um, relative to other jurisdictions, uh, which allows for both kind of local license exchanges and brokerages to flourish, but also global companies to be able to come in and, and set you know roots and foundations and invest for the long term. And then finally, I think it's also a lot about like culture and attitude and demographics. 
So there, as you know, uh, Southeast Asia has a, a relatively young uh, tech-leaning population. And so they, the, even the demand profile has been really, really exciting to see uh, uh, having users sort of adopt and kind of go into crypto uh, with a very open mind, um, not just in terms of speculating and, and sort of buying and trading crypto, but also what we're seeing is that they're starting to use crypto a lot as well, and we can get more into that. So uh, in terms of the, the business models, uh, I, I, I mean, I think that the, where like crypto is in terms of its adoption cycle, it's still in that like early majority or that early adopter phase for the most part. And so what we're seeing is that what users are asking for is trusted and convenient ways to onboard crypto or to be able to convert their fiat uh, into crypto so that they can then go ahead and, and you know, do, uh, do things with it. Uh, so as a result of that, um, you know, brokerages and exchanges continue to be the dominant business model um, that, that is proven to be viable, even in, in these uh, ascending markets. In addition to that, uh, the, the other business model that's starting to really emerge uh, as a result of the crypto economy in general getting more vibrant is uh, what I would call like the rise of self-hosted wallets. So what we're also seeing is that users are getting um, fluent and adept enough um, after they've done a few trades to want to uh, withdraw their assets to these self-hosted wallets uh, and then go ahead and start deploying them into decentralized applications. So we're seeing a, a lot of uptake on uh, self-hosted wallets as well, which I'm happy to go more into. And uh, Hassan, um, you know, I want to take a bit of a, a detour here. Uh, Within, you know, this this question that you just answered, uh, you you touched on regulation, and and can you talk a bit more as to how these business models um, across the Southeast Asia region are changing uh, in relation to local regulations and such? Sure. Regulation is a, is a very important topic um, and very top of mind for crypto and Web3 because uh, it's such a new um, breakthrough technology that's sort of still being uh, worked through uh, in terms of the full surface area of its use cases. What we're seeing is that re re it's usually financial regulators uh, that usually will um, sort of step in and, and you know, uh, claim coverage over crypto um, as a financial asset. Uh, and, and I think that that's an entirely valid point of view. Um, but, but the one thing I would call out is because again, blockchains uh, are just a fundamental uh, technology that can be built on top of. What we're also seeing is that uh, even though sort of financial use cases, including trading and you know, eventually DeFi might be like the, the tip of the sphere or the first phase of it, Eventually, it's you know like feeling up different uh, different parts of an elephant. Uh, it's going to require a much more tailored and and um, uh, bespoke approach as to what parts of Web three are regulated by what types of regulators. That said, uh, within Southeast Asia, uh, it, it is interesting to see that, uh, for example, in the Philippines, uh, crypto is regulated by the the Central Bank of the Philippines, the BSP. Uh, and it's mostly uh, sort of categorized uh, initially as a currency, and now it's being categorized as a virtual asset, uh, which is a term that uh, FATF, uh, which is a, a kind of supra 
government body um, has uh, you know, come up with. In, uh, in Thailand, it's the SEC uh, over there that regulates uh, crypto and they sort of take a bit of a security first approach towards it. And then finally in Indonesia, uh, there's a, a, the Ministry of Trade uh, and uh, Bapakti uh, as it's sort of known locally uh, has uh, deemed it a commodity and they are now regulating it as a, as a commodities regulator. Uh, which is somewhat akin to how the CFTC in the U.S. Uh, you know might view uh, crypto assets. So th there definitely are kind of different variations, um, and that's also why it's important to understand and engage with the regulators to help them educate about the kind of full surface area of what crypto and Web three represents. It's uh, for sure going to be interesting to see how this uh, how this develops uh, over the course of the next few years, especially in uh, Southeast Asia. That being said, going back to one of your previous answers, you talked about self-hosted wallets. Uh, can you talk a bit more to this and how you how you are seeing uh, the effect it's playing within the Southeast Asian uh, market? Definitely, uh, this is a this is a really fun and exciting topic. So I think there's a few layers here that maybe we should unpack. And first, we should just define self-hosted wallets um, in this context. So the, there are two uh, constructs um, to kind of contrast against. Uh, one is sort of a custodial experience where you know a centralized custodian like a Coinbase holds uh, onto your assets, and then there's a self-custodied experience where you create your own uh, self-hosted wallet. Uh, it could be on um, you know there's providers like Coinbase Wallet, uh, MetaMask, Trust Wallet. Uh, Coin98, there's, there's a whole bunch of options, but fundamentally you just create your own wallet that you control because you own the, the seed phrase or the master key for it. And then once you move your assets onto your uh, self-hosted wallets, effectively you have control over your own assets and you can choose to deploy them as you wish. The reason why that's important is because uh, you need self-hosted wallets to interact with decentralized applications. So maybe for some of your uh, listeners who you know have interacted with the apps uh, like Uniswap or Compound or, or Aave, um, what you do is you go in and you sort of connect your self-hosted wallet uh, with this app, and you need to have you know the certain uh, types of assets in those apps to then go um, and interact. Uh, with, with these applications, which are effectively smart contracts. So because of this structural feature uh, in Web3, this has led to the rise of self-hosted wallets as new uh, use cases have also emerged. And I want to draw particular attention to um, uh, blockchain gaming and play to earn, because this is a phenomenal and interesting and completely unexpected use case uh, that honestly, like a year, year, year and a half ago, almost nobody would have seen coming. Uh, you know, a lot of people were focused on decentralized finance, uh, you know, since a couple of years ago, and it made a lot of sense. It was very adjacent to the kind of whole trading experience. But, and people had always been experimenting with, uh, you know, hey, how can we sort of merge or graft these kinds of web two type experiences with web three technology uh, and what might that look like, and in particular, um, you know, it's uh, there's a there's a game called Axie Infinity by a studio uh, called Sky Mavis, which is based out of Vietnam, and they're the ones that like had the first kind of zero to one moment for uh, web three gaming, where they figured out the right 
gaming experience as well as the right um, tokenomics uh, and like the right kind of way to utilize NFTs to create this flywheel, which incentivized users to come on board, play the game, uh, earn tokens in return, uh, and then uh, you know use clever mechanics to get new users into the game, which then sort of drove up um, sort of token prices as well. And uh, it took them a lot of years to just sort of get those kind of basics down because nothing like that existed. But once that happened, it was just this like really breathtaking moment for the entire industry because uh, their user base, you know, went from neg negligible, like it was literally like 300-ish uh, daily actives about a year and a half ago to their clocking, uh, you know, at their peak, they were clocking like almost 2 million dailies uh, a few months ago. And that was reflected in their uh, token price as well. So AXS is their governance token, which once it started uh, sort of trading, it was, you know, it was ranging between kind of 10 to 50 cents for, for a few months. And then it hit this sort of high of, uh, you know, over $100 um, a few months ago before kind of settling down right now. But, uh, you know, the prices aside, I think what it just sort of reflects is this um, interest in the market of what uh, the potential behind Web3 gaming could be. Um, and the other side of kind of building the game uh, was that it's really the Philippines that has become the home of what is now called play to earn, which basically uh, means sort of, you know, playing the game in order to kind of, you know, earn these token rewards. And in some ways, it could have happened anywhere. There wasn't like a structure or foundational reason why the Philippines wouldn't be necessarily become the home of it. But I think the reason, uh, two reasons for that are one, there is a certain level of cultural adjacency to uh, to Vietnam and just general kind of, you know, network overlap between what was being built over there and consumed in the Philippines. And then the second reason is um, that again, you know, because Philippines has had that regulatory clarity uh, for crypto for a while, there's also just a certain attitude of, you know, willingness to experiment and try these new things. Um, and this, this incredible emergent behavior happened and now there's like, over 2 million uh, blockchain gamers in the Philippines. And Axie Infinity is not the only uh, game at this point. Like there's literally thousands of games that are being developed uh, off of very similar patterns as well as new ones. Uh, and so I just expect that this is going to be a very fertile ground um, for uh, really incredible experimentation for years to come. And I do expect that Southeast Asia will uh, play a very, very leading role in it. And so as a result of, of this entire phenomena, um, uh, gamify or blockchain gaming, self-hosted wallets have also, as a result of it, just you know undergone exponential growth in the region. When you want to get started on these games, the first thing you have to do is you have to download a wallet so that um, you know whether you're buying the actual NFTs or you're just sort of playing the game and, and earning, um, then you need a place to kind of receive that token issuance that the underlying protocol is rewarding. Uh, and that comes straight into your self-hosted wallet which is a very different user journey from your uh, typical or traditional crypto user journey, which would be to go sign up for a, a centralized exchange um, and then convert your fiat uh, into crypto. This is more about earning crypto or a time for money trade. Uh, and that's also why self-hosted wallets have just really burst into mainstream consciousness within crypto. So I know we've kind of touched on this in snippets throughout this call, but how are crypto users and developer talent segmented across the region? Yeah, there's a few different ways to, to cut this. Uh, I would say that the right now, especially for Southeast Asia, 
the majority of the, the interest is around uh, what's sort of typically labeled as mass retail, uh, just because these are very populous countries. So some of the stats here are, uh, if you think back again to the Philippines, you know, it's roughly 107 million uh, total population. There's about 60 million e-money users. And the reason why I use e-money users as, as sort of as a heuristic for what crypto adoption could ultimately be is because some of those kind of uh, user journeys look very similar in that, you know, you have to be connected to the internet, you have to download an app, you have to pass KYC, you have to fund a wallet, and then eventually you go in and buy a crypto. Uh, and then today in the Philippines, there's, uh, I think about 15 million um, crypto users. In, in Indonesia, the, the numbers are potentials even bigger. You know, there's about 270 million uh, population, about 120 million e-money users, and at last count, about 11 million crypto users. So I do think that you know, within retail, um, I do expect that headroom to eventually get saturated because it's, uh, again, it's multiple use cases. Uh, it's not just sort of trading, but eventually I do see uh, you know, crypto-based payments becoming more important, whether it's uh, remittances or cross-border commerce uh, or just domestic payments. Uh, and then there's, uh, again, like other types of uh, new use cases that are emerging as well. So we're going to have these, um, you know, retail buyers uh, that are starting their journey on CFI and buying crypto. And then in parallel, we're seeing this catch up of uh, users that are earning crypto that are roughly kind of within that same addressable population, but because their, their user, their journey starts are different. Um, right now, I, I do, I do consider them somewhat like separate segments and especially uh, would be marketed to uh, in, in a fu fundamentally different kind of way. I think that the, the uh, other uh, demand um, segment is the institutional side. So on institutions, you can roughly kind of break these out into um, what I would call asset managers. So these could be traditional asset managers with crypto allocations, uh, crypto native asset managers like uh, crypto hedge funds, uh, as well as just family offices and high net worth individuals that are, um, you know, trading their own capital. And then you have the regulated financial institutions or, or just these bigger kind of corporates of the world. Uh, many of them just want to kind of hold crypto on their treasury, like MicroStrategy or Tesla. Uh, and then finally, you have uh, what's called these introducing brokers, uh, which are somewhat of, of like a B2B2C play. Um, it could be a payments platform that wants to add a crypto use case uh, to its, its uh, offering. Uh, it could be just a traditional you know, equities broker that again is, is adding crypto. Um, so those are also considered um, institutional in a sense. Uh, many of those, uh, especially pools of capital, um, you know, are in Singapore, uh, Thailand. Uh, there's, there's definitely family offices and just high net worth individuals everywhere. Uh, and then you have these scaled up payments platforms, you know, that at least there's one to three major ones in each of the big markets. And then finally on the developer side, um, I wouldn't explicitly uh, call out Vietnam for this one. I do think that Vietnam probably has the most uh, talent density uh, on the developer side in Southeast Asia. Uh, they've been exceptionally good at uh, even kind of traditional gaming, uh, but now they've taken gone all in on Web3 gaming as well. Uh, there's a lot of interesting protocols that have come out of Vietnam, a lot of interesting DeFi projects. So we're just seeing most of the builder action right now happening in Vietnam. Uh, although one of my aspirations is to, to kind of increase that service area and that level of developer activity um, for the Philippines and Indonesia in particular as well.
So Hassan, taking a step back, when looking at the overall Southeast Asian markets, uh, compared to countries such as the United States, where one business model works well, in Southeast Asia, it seems that in order to find product market fit, some would say you would have to tailor uh, your product to the 11 markets in the region due to maybe local market level differences. How does Coinbase plan on tackling this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's a very valid observation. Uh, you know, even though we, we talk a lot about Southeast Asia as a region, um, you know, within uh, SEA, there, there's just a lot of uh, market variance, cultural variance, um, and attitudinal variance. Uh, so that needs to be taken into account uh, when we're thinking about go-to-market strategies and product uh, localization in particular. There are certain patterns that we know um, are effective and, and just need to be kind of translated across as a framework. So an example of that is, you know, we know that because some of our core service offering is, is around making um, crypt, buying crypto as easy as possible, part of the value proposition there needs to be that a user uh, should be uh, able to use the payment method that is most convenient for them. And one of the, the structural idiosyncrasies about Southeast Asia is that there are so many different payment methods in Southeast Asia, it just takes your breath away. Uh, for folks that are not used to the region when they come here initially, they're, they're uh, payments uh, professionals, they're, they're just in shock at like how many e-wallets are proliferating across the region. And so, so there is uh, certainly a level of effort and, and focus that needs to be given on, uh, hey, how do I uh, create that convenient and easy um, fiat on-ramp experience. So in, in, the, uh, in the Philippines, again, you know, you might want to offer uh, Gcash as well as Paymaya. You want to have access to the real-time payments network, uh, which is uh, called sort of PesoNet and Instapay. Uh, you want to be able to have users um, access cash top-ups via kind of physical retail channels like 7-Eleven, uh, and uh, these pawn shops like Cebuana uh, and uh, uh, M. Lulier. So, so you just have to understand like all of these kind of specific local idiosyncrasies when you're analyzing the market. I think the other uh, consistent piece of localization uh, that you have to do is localize KYC. And again, in, in contrast to the US where, you know, national ID databases are very well structured and, and you know, IDs are standardized and just you know, the general level of uh, education is at a certain point. Um, it, it's not like that over here. It, you know, it's it's only been recently in Indonesia, for example, that there is a digital national database called Asli that uh, fintech providers can tap into. Um, and even then, there's a lot of inconsistencies because you know even the government is still trying to get to 100% um, you know up to date coverage for its citizens. Uh, and then other kinds of things around, hey, like, uh, are, are users kind of taking their, their photo the right way? Is there enough liveness in there? So I think just that, that KYC and user onboarding journey is a series of never-ending optimizations, uh, honestly, that, that every uh, sort of regulated tech platform kind of goes through. Um, I think after that thing, and you start getting into these more of sort of the, the unknown unknowns uh, of, hey, product stand up in this market the way that it's designed right now. Um, some, of, some of these things have to do with, hey, like if I have like a core and easy brokerage experience, for example, 
is that actually what the market wants or are they more price sensitive? So maybe we should offer up the, the order book experience first, but that's not really for you know regular users, but um, until we try out or we A-B test those things, we're not really gonna know what is the actual preferred user journey and, and how to kind of segment against that. One example of this is uh, Thailand, um, interestingly, is a very heavy trading market. Um, just it happens to be sort of somewhat like cultural and attitudinal, but uh, Thai users are very, very proficient at figuring out um, trading concepts and, and order book exchanges. And so as a result of that, even though every other market uh, has all these kind of big brokerages, um, and just to maybe explain that a little bit, when I say brokerage versus an exchange, what I mean is um, if you think about Charles Schwab versus the NASDAQ, when you go to buy like a, a share of, of Tesla, you would just log into your you know, equities broker, which could be TD Ameritrade or, or Charles Schwab or eToro, and you get flashed a certain price. But the broker is then taking your order and then executing it on the actual trading venue. The trading venue in, in traditional securities and commodities is not really meant for retail users, but it's not like that for, for crypto where users can actually directly access these uh, order book exchanges, uh, which is both a, a kind of a very unique benefit for those that want it, or, but it can also be overwhelming for those that don't know what they're doing. So back to the point there is that in Thailand, uh, users have uh, been surprisingly proficient in navigating order book exchanges and they get better rates on it. Um, and that's the model that works in Thailand. Whereas uh, in Indonesia, even though uh, people are price sensitive, uh, the, uh, the brokerage model has shown to be the, the maybe better product market fit. So, so again, I, I think until you spend enough time on the ground and you really observe what's going on and you connect it to, uh, again, like, you know, what are some of these kind of cultural attitudes or these kind of ingrained values uh, that people are solving for, it's very, very hard to make these kind of, you know, high level uh, um, decisions around it. Um, and that's why time in market just matters so much in understanding these variations. And Hassan, with venture capital funding more than doubling from 9.4 billion US dollars in 2020 to 27.5 billion US dollars in 2021 uh, within the region, what is it that Coinbase is seeing in crypto uh, in Southeast Asia? which has really caused uh, them to move out there. Uh, what, is, what is the core thesis you're, you're trying to achieve? Yeah, we, we at Coinbase are very, very excited at the, the market prospects that we see in Southeast Asia. Overall, our uh, mission is to increase economic freedom around the world. And, and so in order to achieve that mission, we want to be in the markets and the countries where we can you know, provide and, uh, our services uh, and deliver value to users, uh, help them harness the power of, of crypto and Web3 to achieve their kind of economic goals as well. And uh, for some of the reasons that I mentioned before of you know, Southeast Asia being a, a, a populous uh, region overall, uh, having you know relatively high level of regulatory clarity in many of the major markets, um, and just a very attractive demand profile and adoption levels. I think for all of those reasons, uh, we're very very excited to to be here and to uh, increase our uh, products and services in all these different markets. I think the the venture the venture capital profile and increased capital allocation is also reflective of many of these factors where um, you know, we are seeing a, a lot of 
uh, new startups um, emerge both on the kind of CeFi side as well as the uh, crypto native side. Um, they're happening in, in Vietnam, they're happening in Singapore, um, as well as many of the other major markets. Uh, and they're also, a lot of these, these uh, new startups are also, you know, because they're from the region first, they also understand many of these, these pro products and, uh, and user bases at a much deeper level. Um, and, and, you know, the, the markets are just sort of big enough, uh, especially from a user base perspective to, to support these kind of VC style uh, uh, scaling uh, scale-ups. Um, so I think that it's all of those factors um, that we are also excited about as well. So Hassan, tell us a bit about some of the new products uh, Coinbase hopes to launch in Southeast Asia in relation uh, to its strategy uh, around its product offerings, also taking into consideration localization factors. Sure. Um, so the way we think about our, our product set um, is that it has to eventually solve a problem for our users. And we've segmented our, our users into three categories. Um, that would be consumers, uh, institutional, and developers. And for each of these uh, user types, uh, you know, we have certain products that are quote unquote on the shelf um, that are being deployed, you know, even today worldwide. Uh, and then there's an additional level of, of localization effort that needs to be done as we continue to increase our commitment uh, to these various markets. So on the retail side, uh, because that you know in many ways is the most important one for Southeast Asia, um, we have both what I would call um, a regulated set of products um, as well as products that are uh, currently regulation exempt. And that would be specifically uh, Coinbase Wallet, uh, which is the self-custody wallet, uh, as well as the new product that we uh, announced just recently called NFT Marketplace, which also interacts with uh, self-custodied wallets. In, in Southeast Asia, because of the, the, because of the uptake of self-hosted wallets, we are very excited at the prospect of getting Coinbase Wallet into the hands of um, as many users as possible and having as many decentralized application developers accept Coinbase Wallet as a connection method. Uh, and we're working actively uh, across a few different markets to increase um, that, that level of awareness and adoption. So that's something that, that we're very excited about. And we, we do believe that Coinbase Wallet is a, a differentiated and, and very exciting product that, that um, you know, enjoys the same level of trust because of the Coinbase brand uh, behind it. Uh, and it has been sort of optimized to be very easy to use as well. One example of, of that is um, that we recently started supporting uh, Solana on our Coinbase wallet. So before it would be mostly just uh, Ethereum and EVM compatible chains uh, like Avalanche or Polygon or Optimism and then a few of those. But anytime that users wanted to go uh, try anything on Solana, they would have to download a separate wallet uh, and then store their assets, Solana assets separately. But now that we've integrated the two and we've brought those together, users can easily uh, play their favorite games across Solana and Polygon and Avalanche uh, by just using Coinbase Wallet. So that's an example of uh, you know, a particular sort of localization that we also undertook recognizing uh, that like gaming in particular is a big, use case in this region, um, but it is multi-chain. Uh, and uh, it, you know, for users to have the best and easiest experience, we need to support uh, all of these different chains. 
on the on the the uh, main Coinbase app, uh, you know, which has sort of fiat channels, uh, we are currently exploring different paths to market, um, which uh, you know, when required, we do uh, intend to um, acquire licenses uh, in local jurisdictions as well. So that tends to be a you know slightly longer cycle um, in terms of market entry, but we are uh, pretty excited to uh, and hopefully we'll have uh, something to announce uh, in the coming uh, quarters on that front as well. In addition to the retail side, I will also call out that we do have a, a full uh, homegrown local APAC institutional team uh, that is servicing uh, all of our institutional clients um, out of our Singapore hub. So um, on the institutional side, the, the kinds of products that uh, clients typically want is they want custody services, uh, they want trade execution services, uh, they want what's called as prime brokerage services, uh, which is basically uh, sort of a somewhat of a service desk, you know, which allows them to kind of go across different trading venues and get best execution. There's adjacent um, services like uh, financing, uh, you know, for, for margin, uh, if that's what the requirement is. Uh, and then there's also certain things around like analytics and market intelligence uh, that is all provided uh, on the Coinbase institutional side. Uh, and that's all generally available today uh, for all of our APAC clients and is serviced uh, regionally out of Singapore. And then finally, on, on developers, uh, we have a product uh, or a platform called Coinbase Cloud, uh, which allows for developers to easily uh, spin up uh, nodes on, on certain, uh, certain chains uh, and then be able to deploy their, the applications that they're working on uh, on these chains uh, very easily. So, so we have. Uh, so, what's exciting is that Coinbase has this ecosystem of, of products and services that goes across, and many of them are, uh, you know, available uh, in Southeast Asia um, right away. So, are we going to see the launch of local stable coins within the Southeast Asian region uh, tied to local country currencies? And if so, will Coinbase have a play in this? Yeah, so that's a great question. Let's talk a little bit about uh, why stablecoins are important, how they're structured, and then you know where the overall stablecoin market might be going, and whether there's a, a place for Southeast Asian currencies uh, in particular or non-USD currencies in general uh, to play. So stablecoins are, are basically a you know a crypto asset uh, that is pegged uh, in value to a real-world asset. And the first product market fit use case for pegged assets uh, has been around pegging it to USD. We saw USDT as sort of the first primitive. Um, and then we saw the rise of these algorithmic stable coins like DAI and, and uh, now there's others, you know, like uh, Luna Terra and, and a few others. Uh, and then there's also other, you know, blue chip stable coins around USD like USDC. So, so far the, the stablecoin market, uh, it's almost sort of close to 200 billion uh, total value uh, locked at this point, which is very, very impressive. You know, if you consider that it was sort of off of a standing start a few years ago. But if you zoom out a little bit, and it, maybe if you look across sort of the entire F, traditional FX uh, trading market, which is the largest financial market in the world, FX has, has trading volumes of around 6 trillion in daily vol, which is completely mind-blowing if you just take that as a reference point. And then uh, the, the second, I, I think, part is that uh, 
the reason why like you it's stable coins are just usd denominated right now is somewhat because of the short operating history and it made sense to start with usd as some somewhat of the kind of the world's uh, primary reserve currency but i do think that eventually <clears throat> other types of stable coins will have their place on in the crypto ecosystem as well um, and southeast asian uh, currencies as well as just pretty much sort of every other fiat currency will have a mirrored uh, representation in the form of a stable coin on chain. There are a few different flavors of this. It, it could be you know, fully fiat backed stable coins that are issued by a private company or a startup. There are also central bank uh, digital currencies that are being explored pretty vigorously. Uh, and then there's these algorithmic stable coins uh, which are being experimented with. So, you know, some variation or some flavor of these is going to hit the market um, in every market at some point. And I think the reason why there's a reason for existence for these is because, you know, in the local market, when you want to pay for goods and services, you want to pay for it and you want to hold uh, value in that unit of account that those goods and services are denominated in. And so, you know, like in the Philippines, for example, like if you're getting a yield on your uh, DeFi, uh, you know, locked assets. Today, that yield gets generated either in like a, a native uh, token or in a USD uh, denominated stablecoin. But I do think that eventually, you know, as people get more comfortable with it, um, in the Philippines, for example, they will want to know what their uh, peso or their PHP denominated yield looks like because that's what they're going to need to pay for their, you know, their, their rent or groceries or paying their friends or, or you know, what have you. Uh, so I, I think that's that is what the equilibrium state will eventually uh, look like. Uh, there, there are some interesting projects in the region. Uh, one that uh, I'll maybe call out is, is called Blue Jay Finance, uh, which is explicitly looking to launch uh, Southeast Asia denominated stablecoins uh, because I think they view the the, the problem space um, in a similar way, and, and they think that the, this is where the market is going to move towards. And Hassan, to wrap up our call with the last question for the day. Uh, what piece of advice would you give to people out there from the journey you have had so far in life? <laughs> well, uh, what I would say about, uh, particularly about being in crypto and Web3 is, you know, at least for me personally, the, the reason I'm in the space um, for the long term is because I, when I look around, I don't see any other uh, technology uh, that is as exciting. Uh, I mean, to be in sort of the participate in the early days of what you know looks like is going to be the next internet uh, is, I think, is, is about as exciting as it gets. And and uh, further, the the I think the other reason why it's so interesting is because the, there is this sort of open access to these opportunities. You know, if you have a basic device and, and, a, and a connection, uh, you can go and, and, you know, interact with these like the apps and just the open crypto economy uh, without being intermediated or without anyone, you know, telling you otherwise. So there's a lot of empowerment that comes along with it to be able to, you know, ha uh, get more of your fate and control your fate in your own hands. And so I, I think my, my general advice is um, if you haven't yet, do take the time to study and, and uh, play around with crypto. And secondly, the, because this is a permissionless and open um, environment, 
the, the best way to learn is just by doing. Uh, you can participate. There's something in here for everyone at this point, whether it's infrastructure or middleware or tooling or analytics or you know applications like blockchain gaming or decentralized wireless or decentralized social. There's just so much happening in this space that um, it's almost impossible not to be excited about it. Um, but I would encourage everyone to at least uh, try for yourselves as opposed to just sort of reading what maybe the mainstream media has to say um, and see for yourself whether you like it or not, make a decision. Hassan, for people out there who are interested in maybe catching a cup of coffee with you or uh, speaking with you, what would be the best point of contact? Yeah, for, for those folks uh, who are wanting to get in touch, uh, the easiest place is Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Hassan underscore NY. Uh, I'm usually pretty online. Uh, I'm pretty accessible on, on DMs. So that would be the best place to start. Um, if you're local in Singapore and you want to grab a cup of coffee, maybe you're working on something interesting, maybe you want to learn more about the space, happy to do so as well. Um, again, Twitter is probably the best place uh, to, to maybe kind of initiate um, and we can take it from there. It was a pleasure having you join us on the Python podcast. Mm-hmm.